We're talking about the, the serial killer. New South Wales Police don't have a great deal of experience investigating serial killings. I can't picture him being a murderer, you know. I can't picture him doing that to those kids, really. I want him to go to jail for justice. And I still want to fight for justice. 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 All we want is justice. Get us in the court. And this is unique. It hasn't happened in New South Wales before. I, I, as far as I know, it hasn't happened in Australia. I am absolutely gobsmacked by the amount of people that have never heard of it or no understanding of it. This is Bowerville, a podcast about innocence and guilt, brought to you by the Australian newspaper. I'm Dan Box. Hi, Rob. This is Dan Box from The Australian. How are you doing? This is Rob Wellings, a retired police forensic detective, which means he's the guy you've seen on TV going in to examine crime scenes. In January 1991, he was called to Bowerville, a small country town in northern New South Wales, because a body had just been found. And um, the body had been placed uh, or dumped more, more than anything underneath a... Um, uh, a bushy area directly off the track going down. Over that summer, three Aboriginal children, Colleen Walker, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy DeRue, all disappeared from Bowerville. At first, the police treated them as missing persons, told their families the kids had gone walkabout. Then, Clinton's body was found. Just off the Congarini Road, a dirt track with steep bush sides running out of town. It's thick, tangled, really impossible terrain. It was hot and humid, and Clinton had been lying there for weeks. Um, we rolled the body over, and Clinton was wearing a pair of football shorts, and inside those football shorts was um, some fabric, which I carefully removed and examined in situ and noticed uh, immediately that it reminded me of something, so I had a conversation with the homicide detectives about that who had arrived that morning. And what did it remind you of? Uh, well, straight away it reminded me of the uh, caravan that I'd examined three weeks prior back at Barrowville. And that's significant. The caravan Rob had been called in to examine belonged to a white man from Barrowville called Jay Hart. The, um, the caravan was an old caravan. It was a small caravan. Um, the information given to me was that a young fella, um, or a young man, about 24 years of age, was living in that caravan on his mother's property. Um, the caravan was um, what you would expect from a young, single, active man to have uh, treated it that way. It was um, rather unkempt. It was more of a squat or a place to sleep than anything else with a television and I don't think too much cooking went on in there, and not too much cleaning. The caravan was also the last place Clinton was seen. He slept there the night he disappeared. But because Clinton was being treated as a missing person, not a murder victim, Rob wasn't asked to examine the caravan until almost two weeks after he went missing. What's more, Jay had been allowed back into it in the meantime, and he cleared out some of his things. I asked Rob if he was told that at the time. So you heard about that afterwards? Yes. Do you think it may have made your job harder that those were taken from the caravan before you saw it? Uh, yes. Is it possible, and I know this is hypothetical, but is it possible that some evidence went missing from that caravan before you got there? Well, 
three weeks prior to the discovery of Clinton's body to the last night that he was seen alive uh, at that caravan. So anything can happen in three weeks. So when Rob saw the pillow slip that matched those in the caravan, he started to worry. Then, when Evelyn's body was found beside the same road and Colleen's clothes were fished out of a river, Rob became scared. So what are you thinking then? What's your fear at this point? Well, um, most probably that we have a serial killer in, in the area. Hindsight is easy, but from where I'm standing today, letting anyone into that caravan after Clinton disappeared was a mistake. There's no way of knowing what evidence was lost. And that wasn't the only misstep in the police investigation. I've seen internal police documents that show that, after Evelyn disappeared, the police didn't start searching for her for three full days. Any detective will tell you those first 72 hours are vital. Every minute counts. Even after all three children had disappeared, the investigation was led by a detective sergeant from the Child Mistreatment Unit, who had no experience of murder investigation. A parliamentary inquiry heard that this, quote, had a detrimental impact on the quality of the investigation. Clinton's father, Thomas, said he did try to tell the police about Jay Hart at the time. I, I actually said that Jay was the only one in the caravan. He'd be the only bloke big enough to hold him down anyway. But the police, I don't know, they just didn't want to believe something like that. They just said, oh, he's gone walkabout. They said that, they said that They said that with all the kids. How did you feel about that? No, just gutted. You know, it's just like they didn't want to do anything. You could tell, I, I could tell straight away that they've been treated as uh, as basically that they've gone walkabout. This is Jason Evers. He's a retired police detective who was asked to take another look at the Bowerville murders. We spoke by phone, so again, it's not a great line. When Jason was handed the evidence collected during the first investigation, I asked him, was there as much there as he expected? No, no, there was a lot of reinvestigation required. Why? Well, a lot of witnesses hadn't been interviewed. Um, I don't think uh, that a lot of the evidence was not elaborated on or tested. As I said, it was my underlying feel that they'd basically gone about proving that these children had just gone walkabout. They They hadn't been murdered. It had a real underlying thing to it. And how did you feel about that as a police officer? I was disgusted. I was disgusted. It just showed um, a lack of insight. It wasn't until they didn't realise what was building on their hands and when they found Clinton and then they found Evelyn, a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of troubles. Well, yeah. Uh, obviously, it then blown completely right up. Because at that and, point, they'd got a killer on the loose. Yeah, a serial killer. We met one of the police detectives who was involved in the investigation immediately after the bodies were found. He didn't want to be named or for the interview to be recorded. And I don't read anything into that. In my experience of dealing with cops, most of them are just uncomfortable talking to journalists. But he was defensive. When we sat down, the first words he said were, is this a witch hunt? And it's not. I actually found him to be a convincing, decent bloke. He said the police at the time were honest and they worked hard. I believe him. 
But, he said, there were challenges, huge obstacles, including the inability of the black victims' families and the white cops to talk properly to each other. And other obstacles. They were using typewriters in the back of police cars to take witness statements. Today, they'd all be recorded on film. And then there's the gulf in forensic technology between then and now. After Clinton's body was found, Rob Welling says he went back to Jay Hart's caravan and did a proper forensic inspection. I located a, a very minute speck of human blood on the vinyl bedhead above the, the double bed in the caravan, uh, and that was analysed uh, in our forensic biology unit and identified as human blood. Were you able to tell anything more in terms of whose blood? Well, given this was 1990, it was prior to Australia using DNA techniques. It right. was only, it was hardly even heard of um, around the world. It was in its infancy in Europe and America. The the sample was that small. Unfortunately, it was that small that the bloodstain was destroyed in the analysis by the forensic biologist so who identified been, that it was blood. So there's been no way of going back since then with improved technology and, and actually finding out whose blood it was because that, that, that single piece of blood has now been destroyed. Yes, that's correct. Which is obviously pretty disappointing particularly as Clinton had suffered a blow to the head. Jay was put on trial, but found not guilty. Then, years later, a new police strike force was set up to reinvestigate the case. The detective leading it then and now is Gary Jubelin. Gary's an interesting character, so I'm just going to let him talk. When three children living in the same street are murdered over a five-month period and the justice system can't bring the person accountable for that to justice, I think the justice system has let them down and I'd go further than that because the justice system is very broad, it's not just policing, it's the courts and it's, it's the media that follow it and it's the community. Um, there was no outrage. Uh, one thing I found unique about this investigation, and I've been doing homicide for a long time, so I get a sense of, of, of things that attract the public's, public's attention. Here we have three kids murdered, living in the same street, and I am absolutely gobsmacked by the amount of people that have never heard of it or no understanding of it. Why that is, you speak to the community and they say that's because we're Aboriginal and people don't care. I've been working on this for 20 years and uh, at first I didn't think they were right, but now I, I think they were, uh, they were spot on. Well, at the time, I mean, I didn't understand a lot about racism. As I got older, I realised, you know, that was just because we were black. This is Paula Craig. She was Colleen Walker's sister and was a year younger, just 15, when Colleen disappeared. Unlike the other children, Colleen has never been found, which means her family still go out searching for her body, even today. I spoke to Paula on the banks of the Nambucca River outside Bowerville. That's the same river where her sister's clothes were found weighted down with rocks a quarter century ago. strong woman she kept us all together she kept us going she never gave up 
hoping that, you know, we'll get justice for Colleen or find her. I know there's been times I've felt like giving up because it's very draining. Emotionally draining. I want the person that did this to Colleen to be in jail. After we spoke, Paula went and sat out on her own, looking out over the river, and I felt terrible for making her cry. Her brother Lucas, who was only about seven when Colleen disappeared, was there as well. It's not fair. It never has been and never will be fair. But you still have hope that there will be. Yeah, well, you can't give up hope. You always have to have it or you're not going to get anywhere. Do you have to fight to keep... Yeah, yeah, we're fighting every day. Just not knowing where my sister is is a fight. Living and seeing my mother go through the stuff that she goes through every day is a fight. And it's not fair to see someone you love so much go through this, so much pain and so much hurt. You know, we want to try and have this all be finished before we're old because we don't want to carry this to our next generation and having them fight for it, you know, then that'll be three generations carrying on a fight that hasn't been brought to justice. So you want to protect your children by ending this now? Yeah, you you know, you don't want them to go through what we've been through all our life. You know, no one deserves to go through this, but we just happen to be the unlucky ones, but we're, we're not gonna stop, we're gonna keep fighting. Another person who talks about fighting is Gary Jubelin. So who, who am I fight, fight, fighting with? I, I suppose, suppose the justice system. Um, we're trying to get justice and that hasn't, uh, hasn't occurred. We're trying to get people aware of it, even, uh, even for the media. Um, that could be part of the fight. It's all over the place because it's a combination of things that has allowed this one to fall through the cracks. You've, talk, you've talked about injustice. Do you think you know the criminal, the killer involved? Yes, I do. Of all three murders? Of all three murders. And do you think you have the evidence to put them away? Yes. Gary never told me the name of the person he suspects carried out these killings, nor did Rob Wellings when I spoke to him. Throughout this episode, though, you've heard a little bit about Jay Hart, who lived in the caravan Clinton was sleeping in the night he disappeared. In fact, Jay was seen at the scene of each of the three children's disappearances, and police did suspect him from the start. But, and I have to stress this, he's never been found guilty in court. There is, however, one potentially crucial piece of evidence that's not been heard in court. In 2006, the police strike force Gary was leading heard from a man called Michael Scafidi. He was a delivery driver, taking a load of meat to the butchers in Bowerville the morning after Clinton disappeared. I met Michael and went with him to retrace his journey. Quite early in the morning, 3.30, quarter to four, you know, getting, you know, 4.30 roughly in those, that just pre-dawn time. Yeah. Just starting to get first light as we're coming along here. We're probably doing a, you know, in those days it wasn't the speed limit where it was now. Well, I think it was about 80 kilometres an hour. We uh, came along down here and as we're getting roughly to this point, roughly here, I yeah. spot someone laying up on the road up there. So right the, here? No, on, the, on this corner there. So how far from where we are now? Virtually, see that white dot on the road there? Yep. 
That's about 40 metres from where we're sitting. Yeah. So that guy was laying with his head facing down the hill. So there's a guy lying on the road with yes. his head facing down the hill from here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And just as we, we went around the corner there, we pulled over. I went, hey, look, there's someone here on the road. Oh, so you actually, you got the truck and it went round the corner. Well, no, we're, we're, yeah, actually, we had to go around him, pull in harder to the corner. But as we got to here, because we've got quite powerful driving lights, yeah. you could see him. So we round the corner. If you drive up a bit, I'll show you what we did. All right. I said to the guys, I said, watch out, there's some guy on the road here, look at this. Anyway, we pulled over and we went over here to the left. So you and pulled we just, over here. We just stopped here, yep. right here. Yep. And we're looking down at the guy. Yep. And all of a sudden, a guy's come here there was a bit bigger bush there he's just walked across the, to the front of the truck across the front there come around to the driver's side window I leaned across I said mate what's going on I said this guy we could have hit that guy he's laying in the middle of the road there and he goes oh it's alright he's he's asleep and I've called the police and we went alright I said you sure you don't want a hand to get him off the road and he goes no no you'll be right mate you'll be right and just as we're leaving we up here in front of us there's a small uh, mustardy coloured station wagon here with its boot up yeah uh, I couldn't so, see the plates. It was like he, I don't know. I don't know the reason why the boot was up. But to me, he either was going to try to put him in the back, or maybe he pulled him out the back. I don't know. So there's a guy lying on the road. Correct. And a guy walks from your left. He eventually come out of stopped. he come out of the shadows of the road there and went across there. And talks to you. Yeah, and the guy was laying here on the road with his shirt wrapped around his waist, uh, jeans on, no shoes on, with his hand like laying like that on the road like that. His hand out in front of his face. Yeah, like uh, above his head, like laying on on the road with his head turned to one side, which he was actually facing us. Yeah. His face was facing us. Okay, now, so he's facing you. It's dark, but could you see what colour skin he had? Definitely. It was an Aboriginal um, mm. juvenile, you know, 18, 17, 16, something in his late teens, laying on the road. And the guy who spoke to you? He was uh, Caucasian white. Now, and this I actually found a bit disturbing... When the second police investigation went through the records of the first, they found a document, a typed running sheet, showing police had known about this evidence as far back as April 1991. That's three months after Clinton's body was found. At the time, police spoke to Michael Scafidi, but nothing was done. They'd not even taken a formal statement. But it wasn't until I was driving Michael home after we interviewed him for this podcast, that he said something that really disturbed me. So we pulled over, and I asked him to say it again. Alright, we're so, rolling. Just tell me what you were saying about being in the hospital. A couple of years later, because I, I work at the hospital, there's a few ladies that in the kitchen area and, and some of the office staff and all that that do live out Barrowville and all know people from Barrowville. Someone was passing around photographs of some event out at Barrowville. It could have been a football carnival, I can't remember, or, uh, you know, the Back to Barrow Festival or something. But I, this photo was floating around and I was having a look at some of them. I asked one of the ladies, I said, who was this individual that I pointed in the photo? And they said, oh, I don't know. And it was... And they kind of like looked at the back of the photo and, and it had names on there of certain people and Jay Hart's name was on that actual back of that photo and they said, oh, that's that and Jay Hart or whatever. And I said, yeah, that's the guy that I seen on the road that night standing over that young guy. Next time on Barrowville. He tried to kill me a couple a few times. He tried to shoot me when I was pregnant, seven and a half, seven, pregnant. And one time he physically assaulted me when I was seven and a half months pregnant, when I was carrying the baby. 
he became the devil. Bowerville is a podcast brought to you by The Australian. It was produced and edited by Eric George. Original music by Riley McCulloch and Marlo Fitzpatrick. Additional music by Chris Zabriskie, Rui, Graham Vole and Andy G. Cohen. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes, where you can also subscribe to keep track of future episodes. To read more about the Bowerville murders, head to theaustralian.com.au forward slash Bowerville. I'm Dan Box. Listener.